before I actually get going, there's one other thing that I meant to mention to you, and that is in your seat, there's all these little invite cards that say defeating depression. Um, we're actually beginning a brand new conversation starting next week. And so um, it's one of those really, really important conversations. Um, and even if you have never struggled with depression, um, statistically, and just you probably from your own experience, you know somebody, you love somebody, you're raising somebody, you, somebody raised you, somebody in your orbit has dealt with anxiety and depression. And so we wanted to just step into that conversation and, and begin to try to tackle it and, um, and equip people, uh, whether they're in the middle of it or they're, they're surrounded by or around someone that they can actually come alongside and help as well. And so uh, please, a bunch of you guys invited folks to come and join you last week. Um, grab some of those um, invite cards, invite people to come and be a part of uh, our very next conversation starting next week. So um, my wife and I, we have four kids and uh, we have a couple of adult children and we have a couple of younger children. And if you're a parent, uh, it, especially if your kids have gotten a little bit older at all, one of the great sort of challenges, but also amazing experiences when your kids are little and growing is the process of teaching them how to ride a bike. And uh, our oldest son, his name's Jaron, he's 21 and he is like a man and beefy and strong and courageous and all that stuff now. But when he was little, he was none of those things. And uh, in fact, like he was so scared of like, he, he just had like this sense anytime he was anticipating something that just was loud or would startle him or whatever, he would just get really, really, really upset. And so um, one of the things that happened was like when we were out in public and we'd go into restrooms and the automatic flushing toilet would just like scare him to death because it was so loud. I don't know if he thought he was going to get sucked in or whatever. And because he was little, it didn't always, the sensor didn't always pick him up. And so it would like flush in the middle and he would flip out. And so anytime he had to go to the bathroom, he would literally just start freaking out. Like, no, it's the flood, the toilet. And I was just like, I'm going to stand over here and put my hand on this thing. No, it's going to. And then I, I moved my hand one time to grab my phone and it flushed. And he was like freaking out, crying. It was just a mess. Well, when we started teaching him how to ride a bike, he was actually pretty good at it. Really coordinated, picked it up pretty quickly. Um, but the first time he fell going off of a, a curb, like that was it. So after that, even though he knew how to ride a bike over a curb and kind of off the sidewalk, Anytime like he, we would come up to something like that, he would just literally just start wailing and crying. And so we'd have to stop. We're out in the middle. It's like, come on. And it was just so overwhelming. But we've done that. We've been down that road four different times now. And our kids are all so different. In fact, when we were trying to teach our daughter Kaylee, like his little sister, how to ride a bike, like we, she was like, she was just a, a, a nut that we couldn't crack. And so he ended up teaching her how to ride a bike. We're just like, we don't know what to do. He's like, I got this. And he stepped in and taught his sister how to ride a bike. Uh, and we looked out one day and she's riding because he taught her. It was, it was amazing. But because our kids are so different, each time that experience has been incredibly different. And there's all these, like, if you haven't done it yet, like there's all these tips and tricks about how to make it simpler and easier and better. And none of it's true and none of it works. It's all just hype. Because no matter how old your kid is or what their personality is like, there's no way to remove the fear of falling or crashing for them, even if they start to get the hang of it. And so that's why kids love training wheels, right? And, and they're great for a season. Our son, Kelton, like I thought he was gonna be like 45 and still have training wheels because he just was like, nope, not ready. Took him off, nope, put him back on dad. So he's just, eventually, here's the problem. They're great, but eventually they get in the way of actually learning how to ride a bike. And the problem for most kids is that they don't, really feel ready for the challenge or the risk of riding without them. And even the kids who think that they're ready 
have second thoughts once they finally get taken off and they experience like how disorienting it is to try to find their balance on a bike without them. Now, here's the thing. That experience isn't unique to kids and it certainly isn't unique to riding a bike because it, it actually repeats itself throughout our lives. Like, like have you ever had an experience that you've stepped into, maybe as, even as an adult, into a moment where even though you kind of knew what you were getting yourself into, or at least you thought you knew what you were getting yourself into, you thought you knew what was coming, but once you arrived in that moment, you felt completely unprepared. You felt completely overwhelmed by how challenging it turned out to be. It was very disorienting, maybe a little bit fearful, maybe a little bit scared. Of course you have, because we all have, whether it was learning how to drive or learning how to ride a horse or learning how to ice skate or ride a hoverboard, which you should not do after the age of 30 or a one wheel or anything like that. Just ask our, our tech guy, Kevin, um, because he was riding a one wheel last year and got in a tussle with a goose that he got a little too close to her goslings and she, she gave him the business and he got some serious road rash, all right? Um, or whether it's leading a team or parenting or a new role or responsibility at work, even in the moments where you were able to practice a little bit or prepare a little bit, it can still be stressful, maybe a little bit scary and even downright overwhelming depending on what it is. And, and, and it's one thing for us to get in over our head when it's your mistake or when it's something that you signed up for, right? When you decided I wanna do that. But, but sometimes we get into those situations where somebody else put us in those situations. And we all know what it feels like to be put into situations that we don't feel ready for. What's crazy is that we're often, you know, we are, we are often placed in those situations by people that we trust, whether it was a parent or a teacher or a boss or a friend or a mentor. And, and what's worse is, most of the time, they knew. They knew that we were gonna be overwhelmed. They knew what we were stepping into. They knew that we would be outmatched. But they also knew that there was something else waiting for us on the other side of that experience. There was something else that could only be gained by us stepping into that moment. And it's only later for us, with the benefit of hindsight, that we actually have the clarity and the perspective to see what they saw, that those uncomfortable experiences, those challenges were exactly what we needed for our growth and for our progression. Now, one of the things that's interesting and kind of funny when you begin to read the scriptures, when you begin to read about the life of Jesus, is Jesus seemed to have this oversized assumption about the abilities and the capabilities of his disciples and followers. And so they didn't know that he only had three years, but Jesus knew he only had three years with them. And so he was constantly pushing them into situations that they didn't feel ready for, where they felt over their heads, and so he did things and he encouraged them to do things that violated the religious norms that they had been taught and raised with their whole life, right? So he, he frequently talked to or touched or helped or healed people that he wasn't supposed to as a rabbi, whether it was somebody who was demon-possessed or a tax collector or somebody that was on the margins or the fringes of society, even in situations that they had a lot of experience with because they were experienced fishermen. Jesus, on a, several different occasions, knowingly sent them into storms that were on the sea that, that, where they would be overwhelmed and terrified so that they would have this incredible experience with him where they could learn to trust him. And then there's this one moment where this huge crowd's following him around, more than 5,000 people, and they go and they all sit down on the side of this mountainside and Jesus is teaching them all day and it's been all day and his disciples are hungry and so they come to Jesus and they blame the crowd. They're hungry, but they're like, hey, the crowd's hungry 
hungry. And, and Jesus just looks at him and says, all right, well, you guys feed them. What are we supposed to do? Then there's a couple different times instead of them, the disciples actually traveling with Jesus and him doing all the teaching and ministering to people, he sent them off on short-term assignments on their own without him. And both times he told them not to take any money. He told them not to take anything with them, including extra clothes or belts or shoes. He tells them, and then he just goes, yeah, go out there. Heal the, sick, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. Okay, got it, Jesus. That's what we'll get right on that because that sounds super simple. I mean, we're not you. And when you read these stories, it's no wonder that the disciples are sort of flailing about and always putting their feet in their mouths and always embarrassing themselves and regularly failing miserably. But maybe the biggest example of one of these, like, this is too big for us, we're not ready, why are you asking us to do this moment, came right after the resurrection, just as Jesus' time on earth was coming to an end. In fact, for Matthew, it's the last recorded thing that he says that Jesus said to them. Now, before we read it together, um, I, I want you just to, I want to set the scene and just kind of remind you of the context of this. And so just think for a second about the crazy roller coaster that they had all been on the last four to six weeks. Their friend and master, their rabbi, their teacher, who they believed was probably the promised Messiah. They believed that he was probably God. He's unexpectedly arrested and then executed. So they watched him die and they saw him be buried. And so they were scared and confused and hopeless. And then suddenly he's alive again. I mean, talk about messing with your head and your heart. Like, what are we supposed to do with that? So of course, they're like emotional and they're spiritually sort of all over, all over the place. There's disbelief and there's wonder and there's joy and there's confusion and there's hope and there's fear and there's excitement. And they're all kind of thinking like, okay, so what does any of this mean? Like, what's next? What are we supposed to do now? So about a month after all of that, Jesus arranges to meet them one last time and they're all still kind of a mess. So take a look. We're gonna read part of the story first and then I'm gonna talk about it for a second. We'll get to the, the payoff here in a second. So Matthew chapter 28, beginning with verse 16, it says this, it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Remember, there's only 11 now. He started off with 12. Um, Judas betrayed him and then went and committed suicide. So, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee and they went to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some still had their doubts. Now, I, I love how this is starting off because it's so absolutely human. I mean, remember, this is written by a guy named Matthew who was there. And Matthew doesn't try to clean it up he doesn't try to make them look bigger or stronger or you know, more fearless than they actually were. He, he, he says it how it was. He's like, we worshiped and some of us worshiped, but some of us were still doubting whether like he was even really who he said he was. Like we didn't even really know what was going on. They still doubted after all that he had said and done with them, after the cross, after the day had turned into darkness, after the veil was torn, even after the resurrection and after seeing him and touching his scars and talking with him, they still doubted. By the way, when it says that they worshiped him, it doesn't mean that they stood around and sang songs to him. I think that would be a little bit strange. There's like one guy and 11 people around him and they're singing songs. That would be, Jesus is my firm found. I got it, guys. All right, you don't need to sing to me. No, it means that they reverenced him and they honored him, that they recognized him as God and were in awe of him. 
And Matthew says all of that was mixed together with a whole bunch of doubt as well. I don't know how long you've been a follower of Jesus. I don't know how long you've been a believer, but have you ever been there where you're just like, I'm pretty, like, I believe, also I doubt. See, we often think of worship and doubt as being mutually exclusive, but they're not. It wasn't that day. See, doubt doesn't actually disqualify you from being a follower of Jesus. And so just don't let it define or determine your faith. And so often that's what we think. Like if, if, I, if I have doubts, if I can't get all the way there, then this, I can't get any of the way there. But Jesus actually invited people to follow him before he invited them to actually believe in him. And so if you're here this morning and regardless of how long, however long you've been a follower of Jesus, like if you have doubts, good. If you have questions, good. Bring them all to Jesus and follow him anyway. But it's this emotional moment of doubt-filled worship or worship-filled doubt, whatever you want to call it, that Jesus decides is the time to drop on these guys their biggest and most daunting assignment and most cha- their biggest challenge yet. And it begins in verse 18. And it says, then Jesus came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So you must go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And you can be sure that I am with you always, even to the very end. So, This is definitely one of those moments that I described a little while ago where Jesus seems to be overestimating their abilities. I mean, even from our perspective, right? Think about their recent track record. It wasn't great. Whether they were second guessing him, doubting him, denying him, abandoning him, even after all of that, they're standing with him on a mountain and some are still doubting. And then he's like, all right, guys, gather around, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, just think about like, all nations, the whole world, all people, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a pretty, pretty big assignment, right? That's pretty massive. But Jesus doesn't even blink. He doesn't even like, he doesn't soft pedal it. He doesn't walk it back. In fact, he, in, in, in the things that he says, he uses the word all three or four different times. He's like, I have all authority. Go make disciples of all nations. Teach them all the commands that I've given you. There's not a lot of wiggle room in what he's saying, right? Now, for us, this may be kind of interesting, mildly amusing, but what does it actually have to do with us? And I think this is where this conversation starts to get a little bit uncomfortable for us. There starts to be a little bit of tension in it because this is one of the most pivotal moments in the movement of Jesus because it it wasn't just an assignment that he gave to those 11 disciples or those 11 followers who were there that day. This moment, and if you've been around church at all, you've probably heard the phrase, the Great Commission. Like this is, this is the moment. This is the, the incredible commissioning that Jesus gives. This is the moment sort of initiated it all. And, and Jesus wasn't just speaking to those 11. He was speaking to everyone who would ever believe in him and follow him ever. So he was kind of laying out for them what it actually means to be a part of the thing that he had started. And, and so there's this sense that he's like, guys, this is, this is too big. This is too good for you to keep this to yourself. 
And so the disciples who were there that day that he spoke these words to, they were just, in essence, kind of the first dominoes to fall. And we know that all of it, this wasn't just for them because when you read the book of Acts or you read all of the letters to the churches in the New Testament, all of the other disciples, all of the other followers who were not there, even ones that came decades and decades later, they all took it that way, that it wasn't just for those guys. This is something he was laying out for all of us. And so when you read the New Testament, all of the language that came after Matthew chapter 28, it makes it very clear that we're included in this mandate, this assignment, this thing that Jesus gave to those 11 disciples. See, I, I know it sounds kind of ridiculous and really intimidating, but we are God's big plan for how he plans to change the world. We're his plan for bringing the message of his love and his sacrifice for humanity to humanity. And if you feel a little bit of tension about that, if you feel a little pushback about that, like, I don't know, I mean, I just wanna go to church and live my life. I just wanna kind of like, I just wanna know Jesus and not have to worry about any of that. Well, you can actually begin to understand how a little bit of how the disciples were feeling that day. Like, whoa, 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 time out, Jesus. Like, I, I don't, like, who, do you know who you're talking? Like, do you, like, there's 11 of us. That dude's not even paying attention. Like, do you know who you're talking to? Like, who, some of us aren't even sure that you're God. And we're supposed to go change the world? This is way too big for us. We're not ready. I'm not qualified. He's definitely not qualified. We were rooming together last night. I know what that, that's my brother. He's not qualified. I still have doubts. Forget whether or not we can. I'm not sure I even want to sign up for this. And even if I did, I don't know all the things that I'm supposed to do, much less be able to tell everybody else what they're supposed to do. I mean, how, how would we even go about getting started with this? And Jesus just sort of bypasses all of those feelings, all of those doubts, all of those objections. He doesn't even answer any of those questions. He just gives the assignment. He's like, all right, guys, you got it. Go get them. You can do it. I believe in you. Now, Maybe something that sort of stuck out to you when we read this is notice that Jesus didn't say to go and make Christians of all nations. He said to go and make disciples. And there, there is a difference. And we're not gonna get into all of that today. But, but the difference is part of what the tension and the challenge becomes for us, right? Because making a disciple or being a disciple sounds really spiritual and complicated. What does it actually even mean? to be a disciple. Well, one of the 12 disciples, one of the original 12, John, he described it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. He says, those who say they live in God or Christians who are disciples should live their lives as Jesus did. See, this is the essence of following Jesus. This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple, to live like Jesus. The goal isn't to follow a religion, the goal isn't even to know all the right things or believe all the right things. The goal is to live your life like Jesus lived. And so they used the terminology of disciple because that was the relationship between disciple and teacher where the disciple would look at the teacher and they would spend all of their waking hours around them and following them and observing how they lived and what they did and what they said. And so that in their mind, in their heart, they would be like, how would you handle this? What, what would you think about this? How would you respond in this scenario? Because that's, how what, that, that's what I wanna do. 
See, the truth is that Christianity goes way beyond believing what Jesus said to actually doing what Jesus did. And therein lies the rub for all of us, the tension for all of us. Because, well, we only want to give God the messed up parts of our lives, right? We, we want to give him the parts that we need forgiveness for and we need him to clean up and heal and restore, but just sort of leave the rest of me alone. God, I'm kind of good over here. I don't need you in that part. I mean, I don't know about you, but I love the way that Jesus loved and the way that he lived and his message and his mission. I love that he even did all that for me. But that doesn't mean that I want to have to love like that and live like that. But there's a reason that God set it up this way. So um, I'm definitely kind of an amateur cook. I love cooking. Um, I'm super messy. Any of my like messy cooks, anybody like make a huge mess when you cook? Yeah, that's my people. It's mostly guys. Like, I'm going to be honest. It's men. Like, we, we, we don't, we don't want to clean. The cleanup, who's got time for that? My wife, like, makes stuff and cleans up as she goes. So when she's done, there's a really delicious meal and everything's cleaned up at the same time. I'm like, it's a really delicious meal. What else do you want? I'm not cleaning it up, all right? So I kind of love looking, uh, looking. <laughs> I love cooking and, and have occasionally kind of gotten into different cooking shows over the years. Uh, my oldest son, Jaron, uh, when he was a senior in high school, we were like sitting around talking about um, this expense that we were having and he confused Gordon Ramsay with Dave Ramsay. And I was like, I mean, they're different for sure. Uh, one's from England, one's from Tennessee. I mean, one does yell at you about food and the other yells at you about money. So I don't know, maybe just like there's some overlap there. But, but here's the thing, as, as I've kind of occasionally watched different cooking shows, there, there's a difference between a cook and a chef. Like, I, I think in another life, in another experience, I, I would have loved to have been a chef, but I'm, alas, I'm not a, I'm not a chef, I'm a cook. See, a, a cook takes whatever you've ordered and it uses whatever ingredients they have to try to prepare the meal that you ordered. But a chef is different. A chef, you don't get to order. A chef's gonna make you what they make you. Right? A chef is a creator. A chef is an artist. A chef understands that the quality of the meal is completely connected to and dependent on the quality of the ingredients that they're using. And see, so we often want God to be a cook, but he's not a cook, he's a chef. See, we, we want God's future. We, God, I want this part of it. And we want, I want the life that you created me for, but I just want you to use my ingredients. And God's going, look, I'm not a cook, I'm a chef. If you don't let me choose the ingredients, you can't hold me accountable for the meal. And by the way, this is actually really, really good news. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Paul says this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And the reason it's for those who love him is because when you begin to love him, that's the moment you actually begin to sort of gather the ingredients that he needs to create a beautiful life for you. In Ephesians chapter three, verse 20, it says, with God's power working in us, he can do so much, much more than anything that we could ask or imagine. See, you can't even begin to imagine the life that God has for you to step into, to step into when you begin a relationship with him. But it starts with living your life like Jesus lived. And so maybe I convinced you of this part. So you're like, okay, I kind of get that. But following Jesus and living like Jesus lived, being a disciple, it's challenging enough. 
and now we're supposed to actually go and make more of that? Well, according to Jesus, yes. And here's why. So the the language that's used in the New Testament, anytime you read in the New Testament about somebody being a disciple, it's the same language that's used for making disciples. And so the way that it gets translated into English, whether it's being or making, is entirely dependent upon the context. And so in other words, being is making and making is being. They go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. That part of what it means to live your life like Jesus lived is to invite other people into that journey with you so that they can begin to live their lives like Jesus lived. And I know that sounds really, really intimidating because you're just like, I don't, why would, who, how am I gonna make a disciple? But look at the way the apostle Paul actually talked about it, the way he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse one. He just says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's like, look, I've I've understood that my job is to live my life like him. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. And when I read that, I'm like, why can't I just imitate Christ? The apostle Paul would go, well, you can. Like, I'm just telling you that I'm a little bit farther down the journey than on the journey than you are. And so if you ever feel lost or stuck, or you don't know what to do, or you don't know what to think, or you don't know which way to go, you can, you can look at me. You can follow me. I'm not perfect. I'm not Uh, You know, I don't have all the right answers, but I'm doing my best to follow Jesus and I'm just a little farther along. So if if you don't know what to do, you can actually just imitate me. See, the idea when it comes to like making disciples, which sounds like this, you know, again, this super spiritual thing, it, it isn't like you go out and you become the teacher and gather all these students. No, it's just us together going out and finding other students and helping them become good students. It's just us as one thirsty person telling another thirsty person where to find a drink. And so all the pressure is off. We can just go love people and invite them into the credible love and life of Jesus. Because you can't win anyone to Jesus anyway. Jesus wins people to himself. See, at the end of the day, God's strategy for changing the world is one life and one family and one neighborhood at a time. It's you and it's me, it's us He has no backup plan. There is no plan B. We're it. And I know that that's a lot. I feel like it's a lot. I know that you might feel like I'm not ready for that. I don't feel ready for that. You might not feel qualified. I can tell you I'm wholly unqualified. But Jesus seemed to think that you could do it. He seemed to think that I could do it. So, If we arrive at this point, where do we actually begin? Well, the thing that I'll say is this, because I think it gets sort of lost in the shuffle in the conversation, is that you have a couple of things that you can do, and we're going to look at the words of Jesus in a second. Number one, you have a God story, and so that's a great place to begin. In fact, Jesus actually started there with so many people throughout his life. In fact, if you go back and read, there's a story in Luke chapter 8. So Jesus and his disciples, they get in a boat and they go across the lake and they land at a place that he hardly ever went. And when they get there, there's a guy running around naked, completely out of his mind, totally demon-possessed. He's terrorizing the village that he's in. It's terrorizing all the people. His family's disowned him. They've tried to chain him down. He keeps breaking the chains. He's terrorizing all the animals. He's just gonzo. And then he runs into Jesus and Jesus heals him and delivers him and he just completely... You know, they get him some clothes and he gets dressed. He's in his right mind and he hangs out with Jesus and the disciples for a bit. And then they get ready to leave. And he's like, take me with you. 
I want to get out of here. Like, just take me with you. And Jesus won't let him go. And he goes, no, you go back to your family. You go back to your village and tell them what God has done for you. He says, go and tell what you know. Well, I don't have all the answers. What do I tell them? Tell them what you know. I don't know the right Bible verse. Well, what do I say? Just tell them what you know. See, the truth is, it doesn't matter where you're at this morning, you have a God story. And maybe, maybe your God story right now at this stage for you is just like, look, I don't even know if I believe all this stuff, but I know when I go to that place, it's helpful. I know I found my people. I know I found some people that care about me. I, I don't know if I believe all the right things. I don't know if I know all the right scriptures, but I can tell you this, that when I go there, my week is better, right? That, that's a God story. And some of us, we're farther down that road and you, can, you have moments where you know the moment where you stepped into relationship with Jesus, where you put your faith in him and he came and like washed you clean and he began to heal you and restore. Like that's your God story. And so that's a perfect place to start. Then part of the tension that we feel is that Jesus said, teach them everything that I've commanded you. Well, that's a lot. So what are we supposed to teach them? Well, it's actually a lot simpler than you might think. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus says this, so now I am giving you a new commandment. This is my commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love one another. If you love one another, everyone will know you are my disciples. So the proof, the evidence that people will be able to see that you are a disciple is it how much you know? Nah. Is it having the right theology? Nah. Is it knowing all the Bible verses, going all the right places? Nah. It's how you love. If you love like Jesus, that becomes the proof that you actually know Jesus, that you're his disciple. And then Jesus, knowing that if it's at all possible, for us to miss the point that we will. So right after he said that, he doubles down and reiterates it and repeats it just a couple chapters later in John 15, verse 12. He says the exact same thing. This is my singular commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. See, so when you read the Bible, the, the Old Testament is this giant list of rules and commandments. In fact, there's over 600 of them in total. But in the New Testament, it's one rule, it's one commandment with hundreds and hundreds of applications. And so when you read the New Testament, if you come across a command or an imperative in the New Testament, it is simply an application of this one singular command that Jesus said. See, we're, we're gonna have seasons of doubt like the disciples. We may not always have the right answers. We may not always know exactly what to believe or come out in the exact perfect spot theologically, but we always, always, always know how love would behave because of how Jesus has loved us. I think part of our problem is we'd rather there be a list of rules. So when there's a list of rules, you can find loopholes and exceptions. And, but when he says, go love people like I've loved you, there's no loophole to that. You just gotta go do it. And that's the beauty of what Jesus has given us to do. You don't have to preach to anybody. You don't have to sell anybody on anything. I am the world's worst salesman. 
I've had jobs where I had to try to sell stuff. And if you want, like my life was miserable. I hate that, right? Because nobody wants to be sold anything. I was so bad. I op- my sales pitch started with an apology every time. I'm so sorry, but I got to eat. I know you don't even want to buy this. I don't want to sell it to you, but please give me money. That, that was my sales pitch, basically. <laughs> See, we don't have to convince or coerce anybody. We can just go love them like Jesus has loved us. I think like the disciples, it feels like Jesus may be overestimating our abilities and our capabilities. I think it feels like an assignment that we're not ready for or qualified for. I think it's uncomfortable because we know that to try to do this, we're automatically in over our heads. It's daunting. And not to mention how people may respond. I mean, Jesus did demonstrate unconditional love for all people. And yeah, they were pretty resistant to it and even killed him for it. But Jesus is so brilliant, anticipating all the fears and all the emotions and all this stuff that they would have and that we would have. He actually heads that off in a very simple way. Remember the very first thing he said to them in this story in Matthew 28, 18? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Think about somebody saying that. See, he had just demonstrated he, we don't know if he has all the power, but he's got a lot of power because we've seen him heal people. We saw him walk on water. We saw him multiply food. We saw him like do all, he all, do all kinds of stuff. And now he brought himself back from the dead. That's pretty powerful. And now he's standing in that place and they're going, he's got a lot of power. And he goes, yeah, I have all the power. And also I have all of the authority in all of heaven and on all the earth. And that, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but this guy was just dead, and so maybe he's telling the truth. I mean, can you imagine? Like, what if it's true? It'd be terrifying for somebody to stand, and, and they have that much power and all of the authority. But for them, in the light of the cross, in, in the light of Jesus' sacrifice for us, it's actually the opposite. It's not terrifying at all. It's comforting. It's empowering. See, because we trust people to the degree that we know that we're loved by them, and Jesus didn't claim, just to, you know, he just didn't claim to love us. He demonstrated ultimate love in sacrificing himself on our behalf. And so if he holds all of the, the authority, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to be afraid of. We have nothing to hold us back or stand in our way. We have no excuses. And then with the very last words that Matthew records that Jesus said, he makes a promise Verse 20, he says, and you can be sure that I am with you always, even to the very end. You can be sure of this. You can take this to the bank. You can build your life on this. This is a firm foundation like we sang about a few minutes ago. You can trust in this. You can anchor your life to this, that I, the one who has all of the power and all of the authority, that I am with you always, even to the very end. so that the one with all the power and authority, the one who loves you the most, the one who sacrificed himself for you, he will never fail you. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. He will always, always, always be with you. Yeah, go, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, that is, wow. 
That's a big assignment. Maybe the biggest. It's certainly the most important one. And if that assignment, if that thought and your role in that assignment makes you uncomfortable, if you feel unqualified or inadequate, or you're just like, I'm not even sure I want to do that, you're in really good company because so did they. After all, even as Jesus was speaking, some of them were doubting if he was even who he said he was. Some of them felt like they were too messed up and had failed too badly. But none of that seemed to matter to Jesus. He seemed to believe that this was exactly what they needed for their own faith and their own life to grow and to progress into that life that he created them for. For them to become all that God had created them to be. See, Jesus seems to believe that armed with his love, that you and I are exactly what the world needs. So, I guess the question is, what does this look like for you? What does this look like for me? See, because the way that we change the world is we change our world. The way that we ultimately as the church, the thing that we're a part of this global movement, the way that we make disciples of all people and bring people in. And again, we're not trying to indoctrinate people. We're not trying to win them to anything or convince them to anything. We're not trying to like prove that they're religious. No, 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 no. Let me introduce you to somebody who changes everything. The way that that happens is in our life, in our orbit, in our little part of the world. And so I wonder, what is your God story? And who around you, you don't need to sell them anything. Who around you could actually use hearing what God has done for you? Who, who around you, even if you don't have all the answers, I don't know all the verses, but I do know this. I don't know if I'm supposed to do this at church, but I do know this. I don't know if it's even all real, but here's what I do know. What if you just began to share? And what if together we moved out into the world and didn't just try to live our lives like Jesus lived his life, but we took that commandment to love other people the way he has loved us and then invite other people into that love. This is a better way to live. This is a better way. This is what you were created for. Model it for them. Love them. And then invite them to begin to live their life that way. I mean, you talk about changing this valley. You talk about changing a family, your neighborhood. You talk about starting to put things back together. We start loving people the way Jesus has loved us. There's no telling what would happen. Let's pray together.